as we continue the series of messages, foreigners, it's good to remember how we got to where we're at. And it's good to go back and remind yourself. What I mean by that is this. Some of us have been saved for a very long time. And it's the further you get away from that birth date of salvation, the easier it is to forget who you were and what you were before that. And so as we go through this journey, we have to remind ourselves the reason we want to share is because of what Christ has done for us. And if we don't daily remind ourselves or become familiar with what he has done, that's one of the primary reasons we lose our faith to share with others. Because we forget that we've been invited to this table of salvation by Jesus Christ. And only he can do it. And every once in a while, we get an opportunity to see something that reminds us of this truth. Watch this song by Sidewalk Prophets in the video that comes with it. And hopefully it'll tenderize your heart to this invitation at the table that Christ has brought you to through salvation. Watch this. Outside looking in, this is where grace begins. We were hungry, we were thirsty, with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in. And just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for. All who failed, you've been forgiven All who dream it 
every once in a while, we need reminded of that truth. That this salvation that Christ has given to us is so good. It's so rich and it's so free. And we're so undeserving of it. And the only way that we could ever be invited to this table of salvation, the only way, is because Jesus saved us. There is nothing that you and I can ever do that would put us at this table. So when I watch a song and listen to a song like that, it's good for my heart. Because I have to go back and think where I was or where I could be had it not been for the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And the further away you get from that point of salvation, the easier it is to forget. You know, I've been saved for 50 years. 50 years ago, when I was a four or five-year-old boy, a sweet lady shared the good news of Christ with me. And I watch Christians mature. And they get distracted with jobs and they get distracted with hobbies. And I watch them lose. I watch them. I watch them lose their fire for Jesus. And some of them have been saved for 20, 30, and 40 years. And my hope is this today. My hope is this, that, that Christ will rekindle the fire of salvation in you. So that you no longer take it for granted And you no longer just kind of just pass through this earth. But you get on mission and you realize the best thing that I can do for my family and the best thing I can do for my friends and the best thing I can do for this world is not just exist, but it's to verbalize and to tell others about Jesus. And so my hope is today, as we look at this message and we're going to visit what we've been saved to and what we've been saved from and to see what Jesus has done for us. And my hope is this, that when you wake up each morning, that you ask the Lord, God, relight the fire that's gone dormant in my heart. Rekindle my love for you in such a way that when I get close to others, that the love of Christ is so radiant and so bright and so hot that they're singed by your love in me. Imagine what could happen if that was you and me every single day of our lives. Paul, in the book of Romans, tried to describe to us and remind us of who we were and our condition before Christ and who we are and who we are now as a result of Jesus inviting us to this table. Grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you need a, a Bible, hold your hands up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. But turn to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 6 through 11. And I encourage you to stand and read it with me. And not just read it like they're words. But as you're reading, I'm asking you to ask the Holy Spirit to rekindle the fire of Jesus in your life. To renew and to respark and relight and add gas to the flame that's in you. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 11. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Read. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. 
How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You may have a seat. Let's begin with this truth. We were lost and left on the outside and unable to find our way in to the table at one time. Many of us in this room, and hopefully my desire is that all of you in this room and all of you in the link and all that are listening via the internet or podcasts or watching on Vimeo, that all of you will one day sit at the table because you received this free gift. Paul describes our condition, and there are four words that he used. I mean, they're desperate words. It's our condition before Christ saved us. It's describing who you and I were. It's describing me as a five-year-old before Mabel Huff shared the good news of Jesus. It's describing your life before someone shared with you and you responded and you gave your life. It's you before Christ brought you to the table. He uses four words, powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That's who we were before Christ saved us. Look at the first word. The word, first word is found. Look at, again at verse 6. It says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless means simply helpless. It's an engine. It's your car engine blowing and throwing a piston. It no longer runs. It's, it's being completely powerless to change your condition. It, it's saying there is nothing that you and I can do to get into heaven or to become a child of God. There is no behavior modification. There's no 10-step program. There's nothing that enables us, you and me, to take this old sinful heart and old nature and make it new. We are powerless before Christ intervenes in our lives. And by the way, and God does not help those who help themselves. So there's nothing that you and I can do if we help others to get him to help us. God helps those that are willing to admit they can't help themselves. So put it this way. This is what, and this is who we were before Christ. Think about it when you think about what we were. There's no amount of money. There's no surgical procedure. There's no act of service that can redeem our hearts on our own. No money, no fame, no position, no title. No degree, no achievement, no accomplishment, no talent, no name, no good deed will ever do for us what only Jesus has done for us. Nothing, absolutely nothing can be done by us. We are simply powerless, unable to get to God. And the only way we get there is through Jesus Christ. Have you ever been incapable of finding your way out or way to a place. Like, imagine, Paul is saying, there's no way that you and I can ever walk to this table and sit down on our own. We can't just earn our way there. We can't just accomplish our way here. We can't get to the table of salvation and the the entrance to the gate of heaven on our own. It's impossible. We could be what we would say is the, the kindest, best most servant person on earth, yet we can't get here on our own. It is impossible. We are powerless. It's only through. We are incapable of finding our way here. Have you ever been so lost that you weren't sure you could find your way out? 
Have you ever found yourself in a place like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of here? I've had a few of those times in my life where I was completely powerless. I didn't know where I was at. And I had to completely depend on Jesus to show the way. I can remember standing in the jungle of Cambodia one time. I rode out on some, on some motorcycles, and we went out into villages, and we told our team that we would meet in a, a spot right here in the center of a village. So we dispersed and went separate. This is before GPS. This is before cell phones. We had no connection. Come back here at 5 o'clock. We had, we had watches on. And so I quickly looked around the jungle. I tried to find markers, and I tried to find east and west and north and south. And on the other side of the world, it's very difficult to find that. So I remember looking around this jungle and saying, oh, that tree looks like that. And, and, and the sun's going to be setting over here. So I should be about here. And, and I remember trying to get markers in my eyes. And about five o'clock, I worked my way out and I stood in the middle of this jungle with a few of our teammates and realized that the rest of the team wasn't there. And we had no way to connect with them. 515, 520, 525, it's getting dark. It gets dark at six o'clock in Cambodia. 530, 535, 540, 545, 550. And I realized our team was lost and there was no way, incapable of finding them. And I remember getting our team and getting on our knees and, and in the middle of the jungle as the dusk was coming dark upon us, we just prayed, dear God, we are hopeless. God, these are our teammates. We are incapable of finding them. Please, Lord Jesus, bring them to us. I remember standing up and you could see some of the panic on our teammates. They were college students and we cried out to God. I kid you not, 20 seconds later, we watched our team work their way and meet us and saying, we didn't know where we were at. We were just walking straight and we just found you. But God has a way to get us to this table that we can't do on our own. We are powerless before him. And then Paul says this. Look again at verse 6. He says this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the what? What's the word? ungodly. We don't like to use that word. Like we think of ungodly acts or someone that's ungodly. We think of this person who, who, who blasphemes God, who, who, who says words about God, who wants nothing to do with the Bible, who wants nothing to do with the church. And so it's really difficult for some of us to think that, that when we say ungodly, even though we have a form of religion, that we're ungodly. But Paul is saying, yes, you're an ungodly. And ungodly means intrinsically evil from birth. We live like God doesn't exist in our behaviors. We have a tendency to live by our own moral rights. That's ungodly. We determine what is right and wrong. We worship our own values and morality. And many will say this. Here's, here, here's how an ungodly person will comment before they come to Christ. At least I'm not as bad as them. I didn't, I didn't murder someone. I didn't execute someone. We have our own standard of right and wrong before Christ. And we even put degrees of sin. Like, like I'm not like Jeffrey Dahmers who murdered and ate people. I just, I just cheated. I, I just said something bad about... And in our minds, like, that isn't ungodly. But the reality is, before we come to Christ, we're ungodly on every level. Our sin disqualifies us from being able to get to God. In Romans 3, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So let me give you a picture of what Paul is saying here. We, we were powerless and we're ungodly. Fundamentally, the Bill Gates Foundation and Bill Gates, who gives billions away to charity because he doesn't know Christ, is as ungodly as ISIS. And in our minds, we can't comprehend. How is that possible? Because they're lost. Paul is saying the Gates Mansion is not far from the state penitentiary. We are ungodly. We are far from God. There is no good in us. When your child is born, they, they are far from God. They are evil and intrinsically evil. Good is never good enough, Paul is saying. We will always be left on the outside looking in. That's our condition. That's, that's my condition and your condition before Christ. Then he says this. Look what he says. The next word, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're powerless, we're ungodly, and then he describes us as sinners before salvation. Sinner means to miss the mark. The word is the idea of a marksman. It's like someone like Jeff Tinsley who taught me how to shoot my 30-06 to go bear hunting. He taught me things I didn't even know about my scope. But it's the picture of me trying to shoot my rifle at a bear. It's me trying to zero it in at a target. And not only missing the bullseye, but completely missing the target. And then, and then clicking down on my scope a quarter inch. Another click. Another click. And, and firing again and completely missing. Like I keep trying. I keep putting another scope on. I buy another scope. And another scope. And another scope. It's this picture that we can't even hit the mark. We're sinners. Paul described it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He said that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't hit the mark. There's no way that we can even find the door to heaven. Like we can't even get close. Like we're over here and the interest is there. We can keep trying, fail, try, fail. Because sin creates this gap for us to get to Jesus. I remember at the birth of our children, each child that we had, and I remember cutting the umbilical cord in in some way, saying, now I'm responsible, or Ann and I are responsible for our children. God, you cared for them up to this point in the womb, and my wife cared for them, and now we're responsible. But I remember looking at our children when they're born, and some of you have infants, and it's like you look at them and think, there's no evil in these babies. (laughs) There's no way that they're evil. How can something so beautiful and, and, and so precious and so life-giving be ungodly? How can it be, be a, a sinner? But we are. We're depraved. Our hearts are depraved. We are sinners, and we need salvation. And then Paul says this. Here, here's the other thing. He says this. Look at verse 10. Then he describes this. For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of the son. Not only are you powerless, not only are you ungodly, not only are you and I a sinner, but we're enemies of God. Before Jesus saved us, you were an enemy of God. And you cannot love God without loving his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul was saying, and the Bible was saying this, that we're enemies of God. Like, how can I, no, I believe there's God. I know there's a God. You know, I, I go to church and, you know, I, 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 I love Christians, and, you know, I think God's a good person. I'm not his enemy. Like, enemy is someone who's totally against him. No, you and I are enemies of God. 
before we come to Christ. Because you can't love God without loving Jesus. And no matter how you try to convince yourself otherwise, you and I are an enemy of God, Paul is saying. You were hostile towards God and had a fear of facing him one day. This is the condition we were in before Jesus saved us. This is the condition of many people in our world today. We must tell people about Jesus. So when I think about that, it's like, how can you and I go another day? How how can we go another hour? How can you not grab your phone right now and say, friend, I work out with you. Friend, you help me. Teacher, you watch my kids. Neighbor, that, that the kids play with. Please hear me. Jesus loves you and he wants you to come to the table. And this is how you get to the table. At what point are we finally going to come to realize we are here for that? That's it. That's why we're here. Like our salvation, we should be so eternally grateful for our salvation that there doesn't, that one day doesn't pass without us telling others about Jesus. You see, he opened the door to heaven and invited us in. Why? Our sin was great till his love was greater. There was a movie out 15, 20 years ago with Sean Penn in it, and it was called Dead Men Walking. And on death row in this prison, anytime one of the inmates was brought out of of their, their room, out of their cell, and brought out onto the tier or the landing or the galley to walk, anytime they were brought out, they were chained at their wrists and they were chained at their ankles. And as soon as their feet hit the floor that they were going to walk on, all the guards would yell, dead man walking. Dead man walking. And that's the picture. Those of us who have friends that don't know Christ, sisters, brothers, cousins, aunts, neighbors, employees, they are dead men walking. And if we could open our eyes, this would be the picture. Whether you realize it or not, we have dead men walking all around us. There are skeletons of people in our lives. And all that, when you could see them, if we could see them like Christ sees them, they're just a skeleton of themselves. They are dead. They are dead in their trespasses. They can't make it to this table on their own. And Jesus is saying, until they trust in me, they will always be a dead man walking. So Jesus came to set dead men walking free, and he invites them to this table. And Paul is saying, that's who you and I were. This is us. This is our condition. We're dead. You're not going to bring a dead man back to life. Only through the power and grace of Jesus Christ. I was hit this week in a fresh way, and I've been praying, oh, Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Break my heart for lost people again, dear Jesus. And I was thinking about the gift of salvation. Jesus did for us what we could never do on our own. And he did it when we had nothing to offer him but our sin. Like, who would ever do that? Think about that for a second. Sometimes 
we don't realize what Christ has done for us to get us to where we're at. We take it for granted. And here's what happens. We get saved and our fire is fresh for about a year. And then we have this high point in our lives where we get on mission and then something comes in, this sin in our lives, this darkness in our lives, the busyness of life, all these things that distract us from who we are. And then we get dormant again. And my prayer is this, is somehow God relights the fire and we start bringing people to the table with us. That's why we're here. Can I just ask you a real person? Who's the last person that you brought to the table? Who's the last person you even invited? Who's the last person that you shared, spoke the good news of Jesus Christ with? Verse 7 says this again. Verse 7 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare die. How many people would you really be willing to die for? In all seriousness. Most likely your wife or your husband and your family and your kids, maybe a few close friends. But other than that, how far would you go to show someone that you love them? The list would be small, yet Jesus died for all sinners. There are very few people, if you're completely honest, that you would die for. Think about Jesus, though. Paul is saying, listen, some of us might die for a good person. Some of us might die for a righteous person. Very few would die for for someone that's godly. And yet Paul is saying, even more than that, Jesus left the perfect heaven to do so. Think about this this way. How many kings or presidents do you know that have vacated their throne to die for their enemies? Imagine for a second. Imagine presidents and kings and dictators. You go home this afternoon and you read this story about the president. You read this story about a king who, who left his throne, went out and stood in front of a bullet who took his life for his enemy. Like, who does that? Jesus does. And Jesus did it for you and for me. Amen? There's no other kings would ever vacate their throne. Jesus left the confines of heaven, perfect in every way, worshiped by the angels, with the three in one, daily, perfect. He left his throne. He vacated his throne. He became the size of a grain of salt. He reduced himself to barely nothing so that he could become flesh and blood and live amongst us and die on the cross. The only reason that that would ever happen is because Jesus loves us. See, God didn't choose us because we're awesome, but because he is awesome. And he did it for us at our worst. Look, look, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the good news. We can't clean ourselves up. Like, we can't save ourselves. We can't take this, this dead body and trespasses and sin. Like we can't just say, I'm walking. Jesus, I lost the foot on the way, but I'm coming. We can't just sit at the table and say, hey, Jesus, here I am. Save me. 
We can't do it on our own. There's nothing. We can't even get to the table. The only way we get to the table is if Jesus rescues us with his love. Here's what I know to be true. Jesus did this. He didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. He didn't die for saints. He died for sinners. He didn't die for friends. He died for enemies. He didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who would hate him and persecute him and blaspheme him and curse at him. That's what our Savior did for the people of the world and did for you and me. Now listen, that's good news. And that news is so good that we can't keep it to ourselves. Sometimes when people ask this question, I often wonder, how do you have the audacity to even ask that question about my Savior? People ask, where is God when all this tragedy in our world is happening? How can a loving God allow hurricanes? How can a loving God allow this evil to be rampant? How can a loving God allow people to die? And I want to say this. He already proved his love through Jesus Christ on the cross. He already sent the full extent of his love. He died for us. What more should he do to show his love? But he gave his life. Just go to the cross. The problem is we don't go to the cross. We look at our circumstances. We look at our day and we forget to look back. And if you look back, you will know there's a cross and it's called Calvary. And the Savior of the world redeemed us of our sins. So what difference does it make? Like now that you're saved, what's it mean? That's great news that I'm at the table like, cool, it's a nice table. Hey, glad I know you and we're in heaven. And what did he actually do? Like when you share with someone, people ask like, what difference does it make? I know I was ungodly. I know I was powerless. I know I'm a sinner. I know I was an enemy of God. I get that. But what difference does it make if I get to sit at this table? Like, help me understand. So Paul says, I'll I'll, I'll help you understand. Look what he says. Look what he says. He says this in in verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. We've been justified. Let's define. This is theology 101. This is important. Theology 101. What's justified? It means we are now declared not guilty of our sin. And we are saved from the wrath of God. Think about that for a second. Every sin that you committed, will commit, have committed, will ever commit, or committee, Jesus says, not guilty. What do you mean not guilty? I, I, I took that to the cross. I have already paid the penalty for that. You are justified. Wait a minute. You stand before the judge and he says, hey, you're a liar. I'm not guilty. What do you mean you're not guilty? You did that. Jesus took care of it. Think about these sins. He took care of your lust. He took care of your adultery. He took care of your lies, your jealousy, your addiction, your pride, your stealing, your gossip, your porn, your unfaithfulness, your complacency, your doubt, your unkind words, your selfishness, your felonies, your cheating, your anger, your doubt, and your fear. Not guilty. Amen? That's what justified means. And then Paul says, this is what it means. He says that we are this. Look, look, read on with me. Look what it says next in verse 10. 
For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. What's it mean? We're reconciled. Reconciled. Think about a bank or checkbook. It means your debt for the price of your expense of sin has paid. It's like when you write a check at the end of the month, if you're good with your finances, you look and say, I wrote this, these number of checks. This is what I paid. This is my debt. And at the end of the month, the bank wants to know, and you want to know, is there enough cash in your bank to cover your expenses? Reconcile means this. Your sin's weighed this much. Your sins cost this much. Reconcile says Jesus' blood has paid the penalty. It's free. It balances. So here's what else it means. Every sin that you will ever commit, it doesn't matter. Every check that you write for your sin, you keep writing them, you keep writing them, and he keeps reconciling them, keeps reconciling them. Listen to me. That's great news. Let's don't keep it to ourselves. You see, we were in the red when the bill for your sin was sent to your house. It was marked fully paid by Jesus Christ. What else does this mean? Look look on, look on with me. And it says this in verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We're saved eternally. It means when we come to Christ, he invites us to the table. We can do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to keep our salvation. Hear me out. It's totally the work of grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we're saved. Come on, hear me. Hear me on this one, please. The moment you think, and I think, hear me out, hear me out, that somehow we can keep our salvation by our good works, we are kidding ourselves. The moment that we think we can do enough, an imperfect person can do enough to get to a perfect God, you are believing a lie. You could never do good. We are sinful people. It's only by the work of Christ on the cross. The only thing we have to offer for our salvation is our sin. We just need to be reminded of that. If all we had to offer for our salvation in the first place was our sin, then how in the world would sin cause us to lose it? (laughs) Seriously. The best gift that you can ever give someone is the gift of Jesus Christ. And I said this over and over, and I'm going to say it again. Children, junior high, senior high, college age, the best gift you can ever give your parent is to trust in Jesus Christ and believe in him. There's nothing more. Husbands, the best gift that you can give to your wife is to love Jesus and trust in him. Wives, the best gift that you can give to your kids. Dads, the best gift. Moms, the best gift that you can give to your children is to trust in Jesus Christ. Not a gift, not an inheritance, not a nice home, not a nice vacation. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the best gift that you can give. Why? Because here's what it means they will always be with you at the table of salvation and in heaven forever. (laughs) Ever and ever. And every once in a while, God reminds you of that in a unique way. One year ago, this Thursday, my dad passed away and went to be with Jesus. I missed the conversations. I love my dad. He was a great man. I miss him. 
I miss the telephone calls. I miss the ongoing conversations. I cherish the ones that we had. I know where he's at. I miss the relationship. This week, I'm going to drive back to Maryland and spend one or two days. I just want to go to my dad's gravesite and just remember. I miss him. But the greatest gift that my father ever gave me was for him to trust in Jesus Christ. And what that means is, I will see my dad again. Because Christ loved him enough to save him. And my siblings will see him again. And there's great joy and peace. Even though when I go to the gravesite and I stand at his tomb and it says Charles James Brown Sr., his body is there, but he's sitting at the table in heaven with Jesus. That's a gift. You see, way too many of us have forgotten what we've been saved from. Honestly, please just honestly answer this question. How much of your life is all about you, your family, your accomplishments, your awards, your races, your activities, your vacation, your interests, your hobbies, and you? And all the while, your friends and family are going to hell. How do you sleep knowing that? How do you even continue to go do your stuff without thinking, there are people I want to have at the table. Imagine if we put as much energy and love and passion and time into reaching others as we do our activities. You cannot share the good news of Jesus Christ after reminding yourself of your condition before Jesus saved you. And all around us are kids, husbands, wives, children, childhood friends, waitresses, professional athletes, people beside you today that need to be invited to the table. And that's why we're on a short-term missions trip. And that's why we're called foreigners. This is not our home. This is our home. Paul tried to describe that. And I love his language. Like, I like Paul. He's a straight shooter. He just comes after you. And he said in Romans chapter 12, 11, he said this, never be lacking in zeal, but keep up your spiritual fervor. What's he mean? Keep your passion hot for Jesus. By the way, passion isn't your volume or your intensity. It's your depth of understanding of who Christ is. And when you know what he is and who he is and what he's done with you, you cannot not talk about him. Yet John said so many of us are lukewarm Revelation 3.16, and he said, it's making Jesus sick. He's about to spit you out of his mouth. Hear me out. Here's why. Here's why we lose our passion. Here's why we lose our fervor. Here's why we lose our zeal. Here's why we get distracted by all our activities. It's pride. Pride is the peace that keeps us lukewarm. Let me just ask the personal question. Are you still in the same place you were a year ago in your walk with God? Like just making it through life. You're out of shape. You're not even healthy spiritually. Oh yeah, I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a son. But no, no, you, 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 haven't, you haven't followed after Christ in an intense way in years. Like you're at the same spot. In fact, if we took a picture of you today and your life and your activities, it's just you and me and the family and activities. Yet I'm not on mission. How many of you are in the same place you were 
two years ago, three years ago. How many of you are in the same place you were 20 years ago? Yeah, but I'm going to tell my kids what to do, but I'm not leading and doing that. Pride keeps you in the same place. It's a failure to admit that you need Christ and that you need to get back on mission and that you need to humble yourself before him so he can lift you up. Let me ask another question. Do you not like to be told what to do and choose not to be part of something just because you think you can do it on your own? Have you become a loner when the word of God says, do it in community, confess your sins to one another, Let me ask you another question. Do you blame your wife or husband for your lack of activity? I'm not part of that because she doesn't want me to or he doesn't want me to. Do you purposely schedule other things on the dates so you have an excuse? Do you always look for excuse not to be on mission? It's called pride. Are you not joining in because one or two things you don't like about something instead of all the good that's in something? Listen, you will always find a reason not to do something. That's called pride. Have you checked out because you can't have it your way? That's pride. Are your testimonies old and prefaced by, yeah, I remember a time, and I will never forget, instead of just this week, Jesus did this. You see, if you keep refusing to hand your pride over to Jesus, then you will never be used by him in the fashion he has made you to be used. I want us to be in the center of the fire. I want to be where lives are being transformed. Like, I want to I rub shoulders with someone who just came to Jesus Christ. I want to rub shoulders with someone who was just freed of addictions. I want to rub shoulders with someone in a group of people, men and women, that are on mission, standing at the front lines, verbalizing their faith and bringing people to the table. That's where I want to be. My wife said something this week, and my wife... I love my wife, and she's in tune with the Spirit. She teaches me. She sharpens me. <laughs> she helps me to stay on the straight and narrow. She's a gift from God. She says something this week, and I, this isn't to exalt a ministry. This is just her. She said, you know what, Jim? She says, Fight Club is where the fresh testimonies are coming from. It's in the center of men doing life together in community. And this week I heard a few, and I, I just want to read them to you. And, I, and here, here's just a couple. We had an assignment this week, a challenge this week, where we asked men, said, men, go take a picture of a man that has a baseball or a professional hat on or a professional shirt on of a pro, or a college sports team. Take a picture of him, ask him to take a picture. And when you take the picture, say, hey, I want to pray with you. And, hey, we're doing this kind of competition. It's, it's an inroad to the bridge. And, and men are like, okay. And then tell them you want to pray with them. So men have to pray with this person, ask them where they're at, and then tell them and take a picture. The place is coming unglued. We had guys yesterday at the Purdue-Michigan game, a, a, a Michigan fan who stood up uh, in his whole section block. He stood up. He said, hey, I want to take a selfie. He says, I need to take a selfie. Before I take it, I need to pray with you. 
We have another man that, that, that said this. Here's what he said. He said, seriously, thank you for this assignment, praying with strangers. To be honest, I was a bit jealous how you were able to just pray and share with people, and I can't seem to find my courage in. I've been praying for it about two weeks now. However, this assignment, I jumped leaps and bounds. I prayed with 35 people. I had seven rejections and five or six where I chicken out, but I kept going, finding my prayer sandals to speak. Another school teacher who had two school teachers that came into a school. He says, to watch my brothers pray for students and taking pictures is amazing. He said, this person, Tim and David, flat out brought Jesus to school today. Love working with men that are on fire. If you could have ever seen the, you could have seen the kids' faces when we ask what their prayer requests were and watch their eyes light up. By far one of the best assignments I've ever had. Another fresh assignment. Fight, uh, uh, the, the chaplain of Basher Home said this, well, brother, I wanted to tell you the good news of, of, of our efforts for the kingdom tonight. Super thanks to the men of Fight Club that came out. Some helped build the stage and tear it down. Some ran video cameras in my drone. There were about 160 people there tonight, and about 45 of those crossed over from death to life committing to Jesus. <laughs> and then he says, and about 25 of those were basher kids. Awesome! One more, because we overcome the evil one by the word or the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Here's one more. Listen to this one. This is like one of 50. You asked my wife, I was like floating through the house this week. I'm not going to be able to find it. But his story was this. He said, before Fight Club, I was addicted to the bottle and I was an alcoholic. Now I'm digging into the Bible and I'm sharing my faith about Jesus Christ. (laughs) The list goes on. But listen to me, please. Who is the last person you share with? It's your pride. Strip us of our pride, God. Help us to get back to a place where the fire is burning so hot that we cannot not share the good news of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah said it this way. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire or fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. All of us have friends. All of us do. We have friends that need invited to the table. It might be Bob or Tim or John or Mike. A lot of us will let our friends die and go to hell because we're afraid to share. It's time we invite people to the table so that dead men walk again in Christ. Oh, Lord, help us today. We've got to realize that the time is short and the mission is still strong. And when you walk into the room... Everything changes. God, help us to invite more to the table this week. Consume us, God. Consume us, God. Consume us with your love for lost people. In Jesus' name, amen.